Right. And I'll start that one so I know where I'm up to. Right, we're at... Um, come on, that's moving around. Session five, so I've only got one more to go. <laughs> uh, unless uh, things take a... Right, I said we'd continue with Nicaea. Briefly, if you remember last time, um, the battle was won. Constantine had made a decision. The Creed of Nicaea had been agreed, although begrudgingly. Uh, Arius and two others who wouldn't sign uh, were exiled. Um, the victorious, although I'm sure he didn't necessarily say it this way, but uh, the party that won, we're going to refer to as the Nicaean party, and that's how they're going to be referred. And the Arius party is, is the Arian gives its name to the Aryan controversy. So we've got the two halves in that sense. One thing worth saying, that when they went into this dispute, it was about 50-50 in, in that sense. Um, otherwise, there really wouldn't have been that much need for a great council. Uh, but it's down to the eloquence and the rhetoric of Constantine's magic words, sign or be banished. And that was obviously the great point that turned it in his favour, which, whilst we joke about it, these are just things that help stick in your mind in that sense, is that it did become a problem. That's why we're going to be continuing to talk about it, because it was never really resolved properly. There were echoes. Um, um, one of the things, again, Peter pointed it out to me last week, and I had a look at it. Nicholas of Myra, uh, he was a bishop who attended, or is supposed to have attended, the information is a bit vague, but this bishop uh, was in, supposed to be in the council, uh, in the debates, and he was so enraged at the writings or the comments by Arius that he actually is alleged to have got up and smacked him, either slapped him or punched him. Um, again, it shows the degree of passion. Um, he was uh, temporarily defrocked and imprisoned during the period of the council, uh, later released. And of slight interest is that he's also known as Nicholas of Bari, which is a southern Adriatic coastal town. And he's more famous for being known as Saint Nick of the Christmas fables, in that sense. Uh, another bit of pointless trivia that I just can't help but give you is that it is either one of the churches or the only one, I'm not quite sure, that both today the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox still do pilgrimage to because of the reverence that both sides still hold to that particular man. Um, in general terms, as we'll go on to talk about it in a short while, the East We've still got one united church, but the east is gradually moving further east and the west is gradually moving further west, albeit that the great divide doesn't come till about the year 1000, 1053 or something. Right. The next character we have, that's Athanasius, but the character that went, uh, the, the, the man who started this controversy, the man who... Uh, sought to discipline Arius was the Bishop of Alexandria. He was called Alexander. And at some point, I'm going to get all these names that begin with A, twisted and confused, forgive me. 
But Alexander returned back from uh, Nicaea, and within five months he had died. Athanasius was he's, he's accredited with being just a deacon. I'm not sure how that works, because he was then uh, on the deathbed of uh, Alexander. He was suggested that he would follow. Athanasius was a key player in helping Alexander in the debates at um, Nicaea. With Alexander dying, um, you've got then the situation of a man called... I mean, Athanasius is known more in the Greek side. He's known as Alexander the Great, Alexander the... Uh, Athanasius, as Athanasius, Athanasius the Great, Athanasius the Confessor. He was a bishop for about 45 years. 17 of those years were in exile. He crossed, I think he was exiled five times by four different Roman uh, emperors in that sense. Again, this is a man born at the end of the Roman persecution, joined the great persecution. He would have been about 10, 12. Um, so he, he'd known the persecution of, of the Roman Empire. Now you've got this turning. You've got a Christian convert, 312 of Constantine the Great. You've got a man who's getting involved in the church, making decisions for the church. And somehow they're still getting exiled and separated and persecuted. The persecution of Athanasius was primarily at the hands of a man called, is uh, a bishop, Eusebius of Nicomedia. Nicomedia was a significant place. It's probably called something else now and is of no importance. It's just to the west of Constantinople, Istanbul, that area. It was a great palace and it was significant in the troubles that they had and part of the reason why the, um, the edicts of the, uh, the persecution were ratcheted up. Um, it's believed that Eusebius of Nicomedia was a, some way a distant relative or related in some way to Constantine the Great. There was some connection between them. Like Arius, he was a pupil of uh, Lucius of Antioch. And it's believed it's this school that was held of theology, that this uh, errant view of the Trinity that we talked about in some detail last time was developing. And a constant thing that I've tried to talk throughout the weeks is that these things don't happen in a vacuum. And it is believed that Lucian would have possibly got some of his views from the great Western uh, theologian origin, who is mid uh, second century, no, uh, 250, something like that, 230, something like that. It's believed that his, and it, uh, uh, he is well known for being a, a great pioneer of asking great questions. Unfortunately, Oregon didn't necessarily get the right answers to the questions, but he at least started these discussions going. We've talked about it in previous contexts. But I think he was on his discussions on the Logos, in referencing back to uh, the Gospel of John, John 1. It's these ideas of, of uh, the Christ in a Trinitarian sense that have been twisted and changed over time, that's uh, been mishandled by Lucian, then mishandled by Arian. Um, what we have with um, Eusebius of Nicodemia, uh, Nicodemia, 
uh, Nicomedia, is that he was actually trying to modify the views. When Alexander wanted to discipline Arius, he fled to people of influence. It is Eusebius and the school of Lucian that he went to. And in many ways, he tried to modify the views, to, to fudge them, to make some of the terms more ambiguous, to be more acceptable to a wider uh, uh, contingent uh, to solve the problem. Constantine was a bit upset with uh, Eusebius because when he banished somebody, he didn't expect them to keep contact with him. The whole point of being exiled was to, to separate them out. So uh, Eusebius, uh, Eusebius himself was uh, sent away for maybe one, two years. Um, but eventually, again, possibly speculation now, through this presumed connection somehow, he managed to work his way back into Constantine's good favor, and he was able to persuade Constantine the Great that actually the views of Arius were not as bad as people were making out, and that really it's not that difficult to see how they do fit in with the Nicene uh, camp in that sense. Um, various attempts were made to get uh, Athanasius to agree to accept him back, uh, over in Alexander, which he orish, uh, originally uh, declined. And again, he got... Uh, he, he then started to manipulate the church through Constantine. Uh, and when he say manipulate, it's saying, it, wouldn't it be a good idea if we did that? Or these are causing problems, shouldn't we be... It's being a helpful advisor, as they're known as today. Uh, but various uh, allegations were made against Athanasius uh, from uh, immoral behaviour... Um, inciting uh, uh, or giving harbour to terrorists, uh, which the Romans wouldn't care for, the excessive taxation of Egyptians, which the Romans, anything to do with money or power or a threat to power, unfortunately, Constantine, he might be a convert, but he goes straight back to a, I'm a Roman, this, we don't tolerate this. So they had a council, the first one, which Athanasius just ignored, the second one, Constantine politely suggested that he ought to attend, otherwise he'd be made to attend, and he did. And he went with 48 uh, Egyptian bishops, which I just, just like the idea of them marching in together. Um, obviously, the, the, uh, the small synod, I think it was in Tyre, uh, was uh, influenced by Eusebius, uh, Athanasius was found guilty, and Athanasius just went straight to Constantine to say, what on earth's going on? Constantine found most of the allegations were unfounded. The only one that stuck was the threat to withhold grain from Egypt, which was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire, to Rome. So... The threat, not, not actually making it happen, it was enough for him to get exiled for a couple of years uh, over to Germany. Um, long story short, uh, Constantine eventually gets his way, or Eusebius gets his way, in that uh, Athanasius, uh, who would still be the bishop, was put in a position where Arius is going to come back and be made, uh, accepted back into the, the church to reverse the position that Alexander had done. Um, and this effectively meant that uh, 
going to be a difficult situation. On the very night that he was, the, the, the night before this was to happen, he actually died. Uh, he was in his 60s, I think. He wasn't a, a young man. This has been going on for quite some he time. Was. He was, uh, yes, of course he is. But we're talking about ancient times now. <laughs> oh, people are so sensitive. <laughs> um, I am over 60 as well, though. Um, yeah, so the, the suggestion straight away was that foul play, uh, that the Aryan party was suggesting that he'd been poisoned, and the, uh, the gracious uh, uh, Nicene side said, well, God's will be done, he's a heretic, he's dead. Um, as, uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating for effect, but that was the, the, the crux of it. This didn't go away, and we've talked about one banishment of Athanasius, and I've mentioned that he was banished five times. Constantine, at the point when he wasn't feeling too good, he decided he was going to be baptised. Okay? Uh, the tradition at that time was that you put off your baptism to the last moment. It's a strange concept. We'll think about it a bit later on. But he managed to get hold of a bishop, and who better but a man who's been at your side for most of the time, Eusebius, possible Arian, semi-Arian, did the baptism at his deathbed, and he died in 337. Um, on his death, Athanasius was then released from uh, the exile, which is the normal practice on the death of an emperor. emperor. But in the next 50, 60 years, you've got this battle going on over the Nicene argument, uh, the Arian party against the Nicene party. You've got uh, emperors that are sympathetic to Arianism. You've got an emperor who's actually an Arian in that sense. It's only at 381 when we have the, uh, the next great, uh, it wasn't as great and as big, but it's still known as a great uh, um, uh, council, uh, Constantinople. And there, with a possible adjustment for what's an, uh, another controversy that's going to rumble on for a bit called the Philoquay. 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 It is an insertion, and from the sun. That's what the, 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 the Greek, uh, the Latin, sorry, uh, is, is referring to. That effectively, it's known as the uh, uh, Nikon Constantinopolitan Creed, which is a, a mouthful, but it's the modified Nicene Creed. It's the Nicene Creed that we will be more familiar with. The original one was about two phrases shorter than the one we use, and it had some anathemas against the Aryans at the bottom. Anathemas are being damning comments. Um, there you go. Um, we'll move on from there, but the point of all of this, this is a key fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, the Trinity. It wasn't resolved until 325, not really, as I've rambled on, it's still dragging on to 381. In some ways, it will still rumble on to Toledo, or something like that, about 546, when things are finally sort of settled. 
This is a key fundamental doctrine of the church. And it wasn't really formalized in the way that we, I won't say take for granted, but we just do it because it's there in front of us in the liturgy. But it took an awful long time to get it to the state that it is that we uh, just uh, use. Um, next week, if we've got time, there's a few more uh, key Christological points that have to be developed, which are key to our understanding, which we know about. But these things are being developed in time. Augustus of Hippo. Uh, uh, yeah, Augustine of Hippo. Hippo, a, the bishopric of Hippo is in Algeria, modern-day Algeria, in North Africa, Roman North Africa during this time. I am very briefly going to talk about the early life of Augustine. We'll do more about him next week because he is regarded as perhaps one of uh, the most important theologians uh, in the Western Church. The Eastern Church doesn't really go for Augustine. So they like Athanasius and they've got others as well. Um, Athanasius was a good, solid man. It's just that he was more Greek. Uh, Augustine in school didn't do very well in Greek. He didn't like it. He didn't like the way it was taught. He was very good in Latin. Um, that's an aside. Um, interestingly, both Protestants and Roman Catholics hold Augustine today in very high regard. Um, obviously, we see different things in his teachings but we still hold the man central to our system of theologies. The early life, in fact the whole of the life, is a very interesting read. It's in a book called uh, The Confessions, which is almost a, an autobiographical review of his life from infanthood up until the point he was writing towards the, the end of his life, after he had been a convert. So a lot of the detail we actually get from his confession, as it were, we're taking it first-hand in that sense. Uh, born in 354, again in the uh, Numidia in North Africa. Today it's a place called Souk Alas in Algeria. Uh, his father was uh, a pagan, uh, Patricus, and his mother was a Berber Christian called Monica. Monica's quite famous as a Christian lady in the same way that Constantine's mother, Helena, is a, a, a lady that's uh, quite uh, famous uh, in church history. Um, a Berber is, is a, a person, an ethnic group. Now I would say they're probably located in uh, Morocco, probably Spanish Sahara, that area. They identify as Berbers, and they would have originated much more extensively across North Africa during the Roman period. Uh, everything changed in Africa in the 6th, 7th century with Muhammad, the rise of Islam. It changed everything, especially in North Africa. Um, so he was born 354. We're actually, I'm going to cut this shorter. We'll just do up to the most the significant point I want to bring to your attention is that around the age of seven, he fell ill. And he fell ill to such an extent that his mother, 
who had delayed his baptism, rushed to see if he should be baptized. Uh, fortunately, as children do, he recovered as quickly as he fell ill in that sense. We're talking about an age when there wasn't antibiotics, there wasn't penicillin. <clears throat> People that went ill, they either recovered or they died. It was that sort of world in which they lived. Obviously, she felt that he was at death's door and she was going to bring his baptism. And the reason being, and it's the same reason that Constantine used a few years earlier, 337 was his date, was that they had an understanding that a baptism solved the problem of their sin but if you were to sin again, how were we going to resolve that problem? And the way that they thought to get round that problem was to, lay to delay baptism. And Augustine, I think, in his, if I remember it correctly, he was sort of saying that the expectation was that he, as he, phrased, he would soil himself, uh, not physically, but he, he would uh, blot his copybooks copybook. Uh, the famous quote that most people know about Augustine is, give me chastity, Lord, but not yet. So that gives an idea of the man who's going to be. But this is age seven, it hadn't happened in that sense. By 16, it had. By 18, he'd uh, fathered a son. Uh, and uh, the, the word used technically is concubine, but I think we would see it in our age as common-law wife. And in fairness to Augustine, oh, I keep saying it's Augustine, Augustine, um, he deeply loved this woman. She's not named, that's why I should refer to her as uh, the woman. We don't know what her name was. He did have a son. The son died, I think, when he was, he was about 18. But ob obviously, later on, uh, Augustine talks about this woman with great <coughs> affection. Um, but we'll talk more about Augustine's life next time. The point of interest is this delaying of baptism. Um, I'm going to look at baptism for the rest of this session because it's an interesting uh, topic just to understand the way that things develop and they're not necessarily the way that they, we think they are when we look back in history. We look back with our 21st century vision, with our ideas. These people in this town, we have to understand the way that they were thinking and what they saw, and that's difficult looking at the old texts. Um, for the period that we're looking at, that's the whole of this period of the first five centuries, the church was completely united on the two sacraments, baptism and communion. When I say completely, who knows? There might be some dissent somewhere. But generally, when you look at the documentation, you look at what was discussed in the, uh, the councils, the laws that were made, baptism and the uh, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, uh, communion, well, same means the same thing. There was no real issue. Later, the... Uh, Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox would adopt five more, is that right? Seven, oh, I think they have seven um, sacraments, but they are much later developments. They will look 
to the early for sort of the embryo starting, but they come much later as identifiable sacraments. Uh, we as Protestants stick to the two. That's just that's what we do. Um, so we have this the two sacraments, and not much discussion about them. In fact, I would say I don't think communion. Eucharist, Lord's Table, doesn't really feature as an issue until the Reformation in, in terms of the real sacraments. It might be who's authorised to do it and can a laity do this and if someone's going to die, can we do that? I don't consider that to be material to the real issue. That's just the mechanics of how it's delivered in that sense. In a similar sense, there is very little on baptism except for the, the peripheral statements. There's one in 401, I think it is, that basically says that what do we do with children that we're finding in the streets of North Africa after we've had, um, not vandals, uh, what, just barbarians through. They've killed the parents. These are orphans. Can we presume that they've been baptised? They can't speak for themselves and that the church takes a view uh, and it's listed in one of the canons from one of these councils to say we don't know they can't speak for themselves because they're not old enough we will presume that they haven't and we will in good conscience baptise them again so those are the sorts of things that are featuring right I won't talk about that no look at the practice of baptism since New Testament times, it's been by water. It's been in the name of the Trinity. Even though we've just been talking about not establishing what the Trinity is, but the, the position in Scripture is quite clear on the, on the Trinitarian formula. Um, it follows on from Judaism in the sense that there is a structure. Judaism, which we would see as a reflection, a shadow of what church is. Uh, they have a means of bringing people into the church through the family. They have the means of bringing households in. They've got the means of bringing proselytes in, people who have been converted from paganism to Judaism. There's a system. So as I've tried to go through the whole of the history, I started off by saying that we were greatly influenced by the Judaic roots of Christianity. The first Christians were Jews or, or God-fearers who wouldn't, because they wouldn't participate in circumcision, they were outside of the Jewish camp, but they were hanging on close. Um, you've got the dispersal of the apostles and the Jews through uh, the Roman Empire. The, a, uh, apostolic uh, record in the New Testament shows that the apostles went to the synagogues first to, to spread the word and that's where they were either rejected, thrown out, imprisoned or they were accepted and the church converted to Christianity straight away. Um, I'll mention those just now. So the practice has always stayed the same. The mode always gets people's uh, attention. There's always been three modes of baptism, dunking or immersion as it's known, pouring and sprinkling. And no matter how hard you look, 
you can't see one clearly identified as an absolute in the New Testament. If you did, the whole discussion, debate for 2,000 years is settled. But we still don't agree in these areas with our Baptistic brothers and sisters. Um, they would say, well, it clearly says Baptisto, and that means immersion, therefore it's settled. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Baptisto does generally mean, but not exclusively, immersion. And there are scriptures in the New Testament that clearly show that. But it doesn't really matter, um, because the, our Baptistic brothers and sisters think of immersion as being part of their credo ceremony, uh, the, the, the baptism. We can identify today in the Eastern Orthodox churches that they still baptize their children thrice uh, by immersion. So immersion doesn't mean credo baptism, is what I'm saying in that sense. I think, and we'll talk about the only reference that we can find in early church history, but from my studies and visitations of various sites that the most probable way that's consistently recorded in some of the pictures and illustrations from the early time is a candidate would be either standing or kneeling in water and water was poured over them. And, and that's what the pictures say. It doesn't mean anything, but that, those are the earliest records in that sense. The earliest record that we have is from a document called the Didache, uh, meaning teaching, or also known as the Lord's teaching through the Twelve Apostles to the Nations. It's an early document. They don't really know where it came from. There's a, a suspicion that it came from Syria. So we're thinking Antioch is the main center there, but we don't know. The dating is early. It's possibly 50 AD. And they, the late date they would give is 140, which even with the late date still makes it a very early document. So we don't, I, I'm not worried about what date it is anyway, it doesn't make that much difference over that period of time. Um, it's a teaching document for, for uh, catechumens. These would be adults from, as we would say, a non-Christian background, pagans coming to the faith, and they will be enrolled in this process of, of teaching them the truths of, of, of the Bible, the Christian truths. Again, this document is around about the same time that the books uh, of our New Testament were actually being written-ish. Just keep that in your mind in that sense. Uh, it was considered at one point whether it ought to be included in the canon of Scripture, and it appears in the early Apocrypha. And as we talked about last week, Apocrypha in the sense of a very good read for Christians of, of value, but not inspired in that sense. Chapter 7 specifically deals with baptism. The, the earlier six chapters are talking about the different way between the dark way, the light way, all things that you can identify with, even though the language does seem strange. Uh, I'll talk about the translation now, I'm not talking about the original. Um, just picking out some highlights from this, there's only uh, three, four sentences on the whole chapter. 
Um, it's the way I used to write in school. <laughs> My chapters were very short as well. Uh, Baptise in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit in running water. But if thou hast no running water, baptise in some other water. And if I can't find uh, baptising cold water, if you use warm water. But if you've got neither, pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I would interpret that as saying, well, you've got a river, use the river. If you've not got a river, use something else. If you've got fresh water, living water, I think what they mean rather than stagnant water, but if you've not got that, use, use water to baptise. And straight away in this earliest document, and this isn't me just cherry-picking, this is recognised as the earliest documents. And anybody talking about early church fathers and baptism will reference this document. So we're all working from the same document and the same three points. We have a triune uh, baptism. It involves water. Does immersion mean immersion? Well, if you want it to, but no, it doesn't matter. And this indicates that the, the earliest record was in fact admitting pouring. So they seem to have an order to say, if you've got a river, use it. That makes common sense. But if you haven't, it doesn't it sort of say, well, don't just stop and do nothing. You can use water um, in, a, in a pouring sense. It clearly relates to adults. And some people say, well, that proves that babies weren't baptised. Because, well, no. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work like that. It's a document that was delivered to to adults for their teaching. Uh, there are a fair bit in, in the, the church history, the, the records to talk about cacumens and how they should be dealt with, and sometimes they went on for three years. I've not seen this stated, but I would have to imagine that Constantine, having professed a Christian faith as early as 312, would have been soon enrolled in a cacumen situation which he continually put off and rolled over shall we say so he was a, a perpetual catechumen not catechumen he was he was continually being catechized catechumen oh sorry I was no no sorry sorry uh, he, he would have been constantly catechized throughout his life because he was delaying his baptism until his death ultimately um Right, uh, we here, here uh, I would quite happy with the Westminster Statement of 28.3, that dipping of the person into water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring and sprinkling upon the person. Uh, so that didache doesn't cause me a problem. We would say that if anybody has been baptised by immersion, it doesn't matter, but we don't do it here, we're doing this, and it means the same thing. If you don't think it means the same thing, it's difficult, uh, this is speaking uh, just generally now, it's to see how you can argue that you've got a right to do something that the church isn't doing. Uh, it's down to this personal preference uh, in that sense. Uh, the subject is the one that causes most problems,
Um, because uh, the Christian community, and I don't mean that in a, in, a, in a snidey, snipey way, the church at this time was united in its view of baptism, and, and babies, young people, were being baptized as well as adults. Uh, that doesn't fit in with our uh, loved um, uh, Baptistic brothers and sisters, but that's, that's the way it is. Um, I would argue that there's been a practice continually. There is very little record in the second century. Now, I don't see why that causes me any greater problem than it does cause a Baptist. If there's no records, there's no records. How can you prove one thing but not prove the other in that sense? There is a void. The first record, and again, that most people will quote in their books on this subject, is Tertullian around the year 200, making a reference to being wise to put off baptism. So... Using Tertullian's uh, style, you can't put off something that you're, you're not doing in that sense. The inference is that uh, the church was baptizing infants. He's recommending this putting off. But he also recommends that the unmarried should put off baptism. At the, in the same as the next paragraph. He's linking the two together. And for me, this is the first evidence of this practice that we see being exhibited by Constantine and Augustine uh, 150 years later, this putting off. And the putting off is, I would argue, is because they have a faulty view of what baptism itself is going to do. Well, that was no, going to be my question. But it has, it has to be that. But the, but the issue, uh, I would say, and I'm quite I'm prepared to argue, is that at best, the church was continuing to baptise babies from the origin of the New Testament. That would be disputed by our Baptist brothers and sisters. They would say their view of the, the credo position is being continued. Either way, those... Both those practices are corrupted because everybody's putting off their baptism. Constantine was an aged man. He must have been oh, 50-ish when he became, I don't know, I can't remember when he was born. But around, he wasn't 60, he was a young man. Um, but ideally, in a credo system, he would have professed faith and been baptised. But he wasn't. He was still influenced by this faulty notion of putting off your baptism because once the benefit of baptism in its salvific sense of, of, of saving you, once it's used up, you sin again, what do you do? So that is the practical reasons why they were doing it. I'm not yet really tied down as to how they got that faulty view. The one thing that I would say is that baptism wasn't high on the agenda of subjects to be debated. We've spent a lot, a lot of time looking at the Trinity. We were, as Christians, united in one church, we can't say that now, then we were still struggling with the um, Trinity. We're still going to try and work out next week, you know, was Jesus man or was he God? And which one was he? Yeah. 
we think that's easy. We've got the benefit of 2,000 years of their making mistakes and getting things right. We, we think, well, no, we can see how they got there, but we're talking from an end position. They were thinking things through, as it were, on the hoof. Uh, and anybody can say, well, why didn't you just go to the Bible? They now had that. Well, yes, but these things are using the Bible. They're using the scriptures. Uh, and we're doing, I'll wrap this up fairly quick. I've got a whole ruck of other sources from this uh, early period, 215 up to, up to Augustine, that refer quite clearly to infants being baptised. Whether you agree with it or not, I'm saying these are facts and these are sources that other people use. Whether they were doing it as we would do it today, I would agree with you, I'm not so sure. And it's definitely questionable at times. But the issue is, did they baptise and who were they baptising? Um, in uh, Hippolytus 215, baptise first the children, and if they cannot speak for themselves, let them do... If they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. Um, Origen... Uh, who was very well travelled, 248, uh, claims that um, the church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism, even to infants. The apostles to whom were committed the secrets of the divine sacraments knew that, the, uh, that there are in every in eight strains of original sin which must be washed away through water and the spirit. Water and spirit, reference to... John 3, verse 5. Everybody knows John 3, 16. In, in, a, in a Protestant circles, evangelical circles, John 3, 5 is the text that inevitably appears in references to baptism in these early texts. And it is when Jesus says, unless a man is born of water and of spirit. So straight away, you can see how this idea of water, or baptism, and spirit, and these with the ways in which it was affecting their thinking of the importance and the efficacy of the water in the washing process. Now, we would see it as a, as a symbolic, but having great importance to those who have faith. So we still see it as a washing, but we only see it as being effective for those that have faith. Various, uh, Augustine will make a reference about the, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, um, saying that uh, those that believe have tasted the bread or, or, or something to that effect. He's identifying the fact that faith, if you've got faith, you've eaten, as opposed to some of you who haven't taken communion. Ambrose of Milan, that's right, I think, um, he makes reference, so many names in so many places, I get them mixed up. Um, but Ambrose made a reference in respect of a young emperor, beginning with V. <laughs> and that's as close as I'm going to get. He died young, but he was a catechumen-ish. Um, and Ambrose was to state to the... Uh, sisters of this deceased uh, young uh, emperor, that because he desired baptism, the effect of baptism would be given to him. 
meaning he had the faith. That's the way it is interpreted. So whilst we look at these old things and, well, they didn't get it, and we just believe, and we have various writers wrote in such a way that it was confusing for us, especially as Protestants, to, to work out what they were actually saying. But there are clear statements in the writings, not necessarily where you expect to find them, where they are actually making statements that really it is faith, the indwelling faith that really matters uh, in that sense. Um, oh, all these, I won't keep giving you all these quotes because uh, it just, they just say the same thing. But I've, I've while, while you're looking, yep. can you please remind us of John 3, 16, which I can't remember, uh, for, which uh, we Protestants should know him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believed would have eternal life. Approximately. <laughs> Everybody's checking to see if I've got it word perfect now. Um, right, I think we've run out of time. Um, Can I also ask you, please, about the baptism by submersion yeah. I attended in this beautiful service you hold regularly in our Capel Camarade since I don't know, over two years maybe. I think this baptism might have been a year, 18 months or more ago when I was a new attendee. 